Hello and welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss the power of civil discourse with special guest, Director of the Liberty and Law Center, Assistant Law Professor with the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, Joanne Coop. According to the Antonin Scalia Law School, the Public Discourse Project is a cutting-edge program that seeks to ameliorate partisan divisiveness by fostering civil discourse among students and promoting civic virtue. In this episode, the Lady Justices offer a double feature experience. In part two, Justice Wood welcomes Arkansas attorney Hannah Bell, a graduate of the Antonin Scalia Law School, to a special post-episode interview about her first-hand experience with Professor Koob and the Public Discourse Project. This special episode offers a behind-the-scenes look at how civil discourse provides pathways for discussion over division. Finally, in the lightning round, the Lady Justices and special guest Professor Koob share whom they would bring back to dinner, the last book they read for fun, and their favorite movie. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast out there hosted by one retired and two sitting state Supreme Court justices. I'm Chief Justice Beth Walker of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, and with me today, as always, are my dear friends, former Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of Michigan and Arkansas Justice Rhonda Wood. Bridget, how are things in your new world? Ah, thanks for asking first. It's great to see you. And I'm excited for today's conversation. Everything is going fine. Quite interesting. A lot to learn. You know, I'm three weeks into, almost three weeks into this new job as the CEO and president of the American Arbitration Association. It is a wonderful organization. I love everybody I work with, which is pretty fun and exciting. And I just have a lot to learn. And that's what I'm doing is learning a lot every day. So for right now, I'm uh, approaching it with lots of curiosity and humility so I can figure out what my contributions will be. I love that. How about you, Rhonda? What's new? Not a whole lot new. Where we are like you, we are in a legislative session. And so we are navigating that with a new governor in Arkansas. And But things are going well. And um, the main thing is our Supreme Court budget got through and got signed last Friday. So I, there's a huge sigh of relief in Arkansas. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, well, con- congratulations. <laughs> and as we record this, our budget has not yet been approved and signed in the legislative session. We are coming down to the last couple of weeks. But We're very optimistic, and we've had great conversations with the legislature about a lot of things. And so in my second month of my second one-year term as Chief Justice, time is flying, and I am loving it. And I'm loving that we have a special guest with us today, Professor Joanne Kube of the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Professor Kube, and we've all agreed to call each other by first name, so Joanne, is the director of the Liberty and Law Center, where they have a program called the Public Discourse Project that I think is so special that I recommended we do a podcast about it. And that's what we're doing today. One of the core values, so to speak, of our podcast is that we discuss literally any topic in a respectful way. We don't even really think about it. We just do. And we hardly talk about the fact that the three of us and the four of us, going back to when Justice Eva Guzman was a co-host, 
probably don't agree on some political and maybe some other issues. But speaking for me, we don't think about it uh, because as trite as it may sound, I have way more in common with my dear friends on this podcast than we will ever have differences. But we recognize that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily operate that way. And that's why I, and I think all of us are excited for this podcast. Joanne, welcome to our Lady Justice podcast. And thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on Lady Justice. It's a pleasure to be here with the three of you and particularly talking about one of my favorite topics, civil discourse. Well, perfect. So let's jump right in. According to your program's website, The Public Discourse Project is a cutting-edge program that seeks to ameliorate partisan divisiveness by fostering civil discourse among students and promoting civic virtue. That is something I think we can all get behind. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this amazing program? Absolutely. So I think that my If this really came out of my passion for free speech and freedom of speech, which I've had since college, I was the president of my college newspaper and we actually, it was a public school and we got in a little bit of a free speech battle with the university. And so that really made me passionate about defending free speech rights. So when I went on to law school, I did free speech research for a professor as well as, you know, took all the classes I could in that area. And I was in private practice for a few years, but then, you know, as we've seen free speech come under fire over, you know, the past number of years, I had the opportunity to join Scalia Law, not only to teach free speech classes as a professor, but also to help start up the Liberty and Law Center. And one of the pillars of the Liberty and Law Center is freedom of speech. And so, you know, we've been at the center monitoring what's going on in free speech and with all of the cancellation and silencing that we've seen, particularly on college campuses. And you hear about students feeling like they can't speak up or have conversations about their beliefs. It really became a pretty big concern of mine. And so being the director of the center, I've been able to actually develop programming to address those issues. One of the programs, of course, is the public discourse project. And so we got that started about three years ago now. So we got it started shortly. We had about a year run before we shut down for COVID. And then we've been, you know, back up and running since, since we were all back in person. I think it's really phenomenal what you're doing and encouraging that, because I do think that there tends to be so much sort of more encouraging to be divisive in our world today and for even students to sort of group themselves by who they are and it's it's we're labeling people more <laughs> and it's you're this label you're this label and you're and then in this group in this group so by pushing people together and including you know being more inclusive and and not you know sort of the labeling and 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 having those opportunities to sort of talk from people with different viewpoints. I just I just think that's phenomenal. Uh, and I wish that there were more opportunities to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, it's. It, I feel uh, like I, I don't understand how if we just go to our corners with our like-minded viewpoint friends, how we'll ever learn anything about, you know, what might sharpen our ideas. Or, I mean, the whole idea of like sympathetic engagement with counter-argument was, 
it actually makes your arguments better, or sometimes you might change your mind a little. You might, you know, learn that you have a lot more in common with people than not. And so I really admire the, the whole foundation of your your work, Joanne. And and it feels to me to be like a really important strain in how we heal a lot of different kinds of divisions. If we can't listen to one another and sort of figure out where we might not have considered something informing our very strong views. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how we solve the bigger problems that we have to solve. So I think it's fantastic. And, you know, that goes right to, you know, we can all agree that this is a worthwhile topic, but Joanna, it seems to me that you are actually right in there rolling up your sleeves and being practical about giving students the opportunity to see a different way of having conversations. And then that's in what I've learned about your discussion over division. I guess it's a class or a program or a project. And so how does it work? So, well, you know, as I mentioned, it's developed really to, to combat the cancel culture, but also the extreme political polarization and divisiveness that you all mentioned. And so what we wanted to do was get students to have these conversations with people they disagree with. So... The discussion over division program, which is part of our public discourse project, is we have student events where I talk to them about civil discourse and how to actually engage in civil discourse. And then what we do is we give them just hands-on practice and experience by putting them in small groups and having them talk about important policy issues of the day, political issues, and how we put them into groups is we actually have them self-identify what their political belief system is. And then we put them in small groups with students who are likely to disagree with them, who are, you know, across the aisle from them. And then they discuss their viewpoints on political issues. Sometimes we do a wide range of issues and they can choose in their group what to talk about. And other times we do issue specific sessions. We also occasionally do larger group roundtable discussions on specific issues. And we've also done model debates where we follow that with student discussions, talking about what they've heard and how they, you know, how they respond to that. So the gist of it is really we're getting law students to engage in civil discourse with those who, you know, disagree with them. Can I ask a question, Beth? I, I'm just curious, uh, Joanne, is it is it voluntary? Like, how do you, how many students show up and what are, you know, how, what's the, how do you, how do you get them to show up and, 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 and participate? <laughs> so it is voluntary. And so students, we advertise it, you know, through email, through flyers, through tabling, any way we can try to get students, student interest. We obviously, we offer free lunch. Not only is it a student, a draw for students, but, That's you know, yeah. there is sort of the proverbial breaking of the bread when you have these conversations. And so we do that. And, you know, we have anywhere from 15 to 50 students show up depending on, you know, the time of year and the topic. So it can be a range of numbers. And do you focus on um, a particular level of law student? Do you go to try to get first years as they're navigating the beginning of law school? Or is it open to everyone? How do you decide who to invite? Do you mix up classes? We mix up classes. We invite, it's open to all, all law students, whether we're doing it at um, our school or at another school, we do open it up. And in fact, when we met, when we create small groups, we try to put students in different years together, as well as those who have different political beliefs, because 
And we think it's a good opportunity to learn how to engage in civil discourse with someone who you haven't met before. Um, and it creates, you know, a bond between students of different years as well. And so you mentioned, so I'll, I'll jump into that, is you are reaching out to other law schools to bring this program to, to them. So it's not just at Scalia Law more. And for example, I read a nice article about how you helped the folks at University of Iowa conduct a program that they just gave a different name across the aisle, which, you know, you used that term a minute ago. So that's a common term for, you know, talking about these conversations. We know some law professors listen to our podcast, aside from our mothers um, or (laughs) uh, a few others who might listen. (laughs) Can you tell us how you reach out? Do you have law schools contact you? Do you reach out to law schools? What would a professor hearing this do to if they were interested in investigating having this program at their school? Well, I do talk about the program a lot when I meet people because I love this program and we've had such good success and, you know, positive feedback. So I have had schools reach or or people I know, professors at other schools reach out to me to get it started. That's how we ended up doing it at University of Iowa. But as you say, we are trying to reach out to other schools and expand this program and give other law students the opportunity to participate. So if anyone is listening who's interested in bringing it to their law school, I would encourage you to reach out. You can find me on Scalia Law School's website, just under my faculty profile, Joanne Koob, and my contact information is right there. Or if you happen to have a pen, I would just welcome you to email me at jkoob at gmu.edu. That's j-k-o-o-b at gmu.edu. Um, but we are excited for anyone who's, you know, to bring it to any other school if someone is interested. Joanne, I'm curious, do you set any parameters on sort of how to, the discourse should go when you're talking to them? Or I guess if you had any issues where there's been conflict that you've had to step in and talk to them about how to resolve that conflict? I guess I'm thinking about, you know, teaching them skills during that session. So before we get the conversation started, I do talk about how to engage in those conversations, how to approach them. And so there is a focus on the skill building aspect of it as well. I love the question of whether I've had to you know, intervene at any point, because I think one of the things that has really amazed me about the program and how many times I've run it is that I have never had to intervene once. These students are, you know, people are able to engage in these conversations and do so civilly and respectfully and productively. And there is one time where the only reason I needed to intervene, if you will, is the students said, we have nothing to talk about. We, We agree on too much. And so I asked them some questions to, you know, help them dig into the issue. And it turns out, Lo and behold, they did actually have some disagreement, and then they were able to dig in on that. But um, the students have been really impressive. Has there been anything about the program that did surprise you? Like, I would have assumed that, you know, you would have had these conflicts. I mean, just if you go by, you know, this popular perception out there that there's just, you know, no one can disagree, can agree on anything, and it's all a fight, and we're all in tribes and we're all lining up against each other. And now you say when you actually sit down and talk, there's very little of that in terms of, you know, where you would have to intervene. But what has anything surprised you? 
So in addition to, I have been surprised that I've never really had to intervene because of extreme conflict. So that was, that is a little surprising to me because as you say, like we hear about no one can get along. We see our political leaders, unfortunately, modeling the inability to get along at times. So that surprised me. The Another thing that has surprised me is comes out of survey results. So after we run sessions, we do anonymous surveys. And one of the things that we've heard is that some students, not only are they, they're appreciative that we've provided this opportunity for them, but they also express some discomfort at engaging in these conversations outside of an environment like discussion over division. So one of the goals of the program is actually to provide them with this practice and with this realization that the conversations are not only possible, but they're a great learning opportunity and they almost inevitably find out that they have stuff in common with people who, you know, in theory disagree on everything with them. So hopefully one of the outcomes of the program is that um, students are more comfortable having these conversations outside of you know, a facilitated environment. Such an interesting and like important program to have in law schools. You know, I, all right, don't kill me that I'm already going to start promoting, you know, alternative ways of resolving disputes. <laughs> it turns it's out, a perfect match. It turns out. It turns no out for <laughs> lots of people and organizations and businesses, there are better ways to resolve their disputes than the traditional adversarial system. Like, obviously, you know, I believe our system of justice is the best one in the world. There's there's no other one like it. Having said that, it's not one size doesn't fit all. Like for lots of people who have to resolve disputes and businesses and organizations, something other than, you know, battle is, is a better way to do it, right? And so there's this, in law school, in traditional classes, we teach appellate cases. And so, it, you know, it's so litigation focused, right? We're so focused on the adversarial model for resolving disputes. And, and your program, Joanne, to me is, it's like a early introduction to, you know, law students that there are other ways we can figure out how to resolve disputes. I, I often hear from business leaders that they wish they could just get the lawyers out of the way. And they think if they just sat down with the business, you know, with the business they're in a dispute with, the, the business leaders could resolve it without ever having to spend a bunch of money on on litigation. And I wonder if we'll start thinking about how we can teach a little bit more of the different ways to resolve problems to law students in the in the traditional curriculum. I mean, I, you know, maybe your program will grow and every law school will do it and that'll be that. But I wonder if there are other ways we could expand programs like it that you're aware of or that you're working on at your law school. So the I mean, my goal for the program actually would be to develop coursework in this area, particularly a certificate program where students from across, law students from across the country could come and participate. So it would have to be, you know, during the summer or during winter break type of program, because I do think it's important to reach student, you know, as many students as we possibly can. And there is room in this area, as you say, there's a lot of interrelated fields when we talk about mediation and negotiation. It relates to, you know, there's freedom of speech principles, as I mentioned from the beginning, and there's a lot that goes into it. And I think there is room to to teach a lot more in this area. As far as whether there are other programs at other law schools, 
there aren't any that I'm aware of other than, you know, University of Iowa, after we came and helped them get across the aisle set up, have been doing it. And we're hoping to be able to expand to other schools and that they adopt it and continue doing it. So there is that. There are programs like Braver Angels that are working in the larger community, but are not specifically focused on law school. So we are trying to fill that um, particular niche. I love the idea of a certificate program. And you probably could do some of it asynchronously and then have, mm-hmm. you know, students show up for an in-person part that probably would be an important part of this kind of certificate. But I love that idea. That's 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 fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, you know, I, I think of that, you know, I guess growing up, I always heard that if, if you looked around your friend group and you were the smartest one in your friend group, then you need to find a new friend, right? <laughs> you know, just to challenge yourself. But but the same thing is, you know, I was told my children, if you looked around and your friend group and they were all like you and thought like you, then you need to find a new friend to just encourage them to be around people that thought differently than them um, and had different backgrounds. And luckily my children all did that, but I, I don't think that that happens enough. And so I definitely think colleges and and law schools and those environments need to take those opportunities to encourage people. And so I, I'm just thrilled that, that you're doing that is to put people together deliberately with people that maybe think and have different backgrounds and encourage them to talk about different issues and difficult issues. So I really commend you, Joanne, for what you're doing, because it's not easy. And, you know, what's the benefit? And so someone has to step up and do it, right? And I'm particularly interested in hearing you say, uh, you you know, that you're actually measuring some outcomes here, mm-hmm. you know, that you're, you're doing that survey and you're figuring out the impact. I think that's, that's really important in terms of, you know, I, I just don't know if this divisiveness, I mean, it's very real. I'm so I'm influenced because one book I'm reading right now is called The Chaos Machine. And it's sort of this, it's a relatively new book. And it's the story of how social media got started and how they stumbled on how divisiveness, you know, increases clicks, therefore increases ads, increases the whole thing. And so, you know, part of me skeptically is wondering whether it's just a facade you know, this created in a world or, you know, and that sort of goes to your point about, you know, when people actually sit down and talk to one another, as opposed to clicking around on Facebook or Twitter, which we love all of them. (laughs) And that's how we all met. So I'm not (laughs) going to say anything, but, you know, at, at some point you do need to have a conversation. Are there any other sort of outcomes that you're measuring besides just, uh, what you mentioned so far? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, you know, when we started, our goals were focused on alleviating this partisan divisiveness, fostering toleration, um, helping students cultivate an appreciation of their diversity and differences. Um, So we we continue to to measure those. But, you know, we've achieved a lot of outcomes that I've discovered through our anonymous surveys that some have become program goals. One of them was mentioned already, which is, you know, it turns out we we have a lot in common, even when we disagree on certain things. And so probably our most common comment, we ask a question, what's your main takeaway? And probably the most common one is that they are surprised, students are surprised at how much they have in common with someone across the aisle from them. 
And so we've adapted it a little bit to help them identify even more commonalities. Um, we also, the more I've studied civil discourse, the more I realize it's really a skill and it involves a lot. And the more you're able to practice, the better you become at it. So I've, you know, started developing and working more on the skill building aspect of it in addition to the practice. Finally, another outcome that we've seen is just to creating a general appreciation for civil discourse. And the students really walk away feeling like this is a really positive thing. They've been able to approach or think about issues in different ways and feel like the conversations are constructive and, you know, pave the way to working together. And so we think it's, you know, with law students, they become our political leaders, our civic leaders, they become our judges. And we want those people to be able to go out into the world and model civil discourse. Yeah, I was going to, I was ask, going to ask, because thinking it through, is if there were any sort of skill list or that you were developing that you would, that you're carrying sort of across campus into the other classes, that whether it's your, you know, litigation skills classes or your mediation, you know, we had a mediation clinic and negotiating skills classes. If if any of those skills you were developing for your project, you were sort of passing on to those professors to have them sort of incorporate that in the other classes as well to continue that. You know what? That is actually a really good idea as to how to do that. We <laughs> haven't done that yet, so I appreciate it. This is great. Um, I'm always looking to expand the program and the impact and there are a lot of different classes where the, these skills are really beneficial and the ability to do that is, is beneficial and we could re-emphasize the training that we're doing by going across classes. So that's a great idea. Thank you. You're welcome. We, uh, <laughs> well, uh, my colleagues are, are current slash former law professors and administrators, so they come to this discussion with, with a lot of good background and ideas. So before we conclude, I do have one additional question in addition to any that Bridget and Rhonda may have, and that is to ask how leading this program has affected you. You obviously came to this with a passion for free speech and a passion for discussion, and that clearly comes through in the success of the program so far. But has the doing this program itself changed you, changed the way you teach? You know, it's done a little of both, I think. So it's definitely helped me become a better listener. You know, one of the skills we really focus on is the ability to listen. And I think particularly as lawyers and future lawyers, we often approach conversations um, sometimes in a more, and we want to, you know, we like arguing a little bit maybe, and we like to win arguments even. And so what happens is I'm sure, well, I hope I'm not the only one who does this, but what, you know, you listen, you're listening to someone espouse their viewpoint that you disagree with, and half of your brain is thinking about how you're going to respond. And so you're really only half listening. And so what, what we focus on in the program is not trying to convince people or win an argument, but really listening for understanding. And I think it's really helped me do a better job listening really carefully, trying to get clarification and understanding. And, you know, before I respond to ask questions or to pause and process what's been said, 
before I, you know, participate in the conversation. And I think it's really helped with that. And then in the classroom, I've always done, I enjoy discussion. I've always done very discussion heavy classes where there's a lot of discussion. But I think that more than ever, what I've learned, you know, from my students is that they can engage in these conversations civilly on the really most difficult topics of the day. And so I become more comfortable leading these discussions that are about really difficult issues. I taught constitutional law in the spring. We cover abortion. Of course, Dobbs had not been decided yet. And the students, my students asked me if we could get together after Dobbs was decided. So, after, you know, just a voluntary get together to talk about the decision. And, you know, that's something that probably would have given me a lot of heartburn before. But I got the students together at the beginning of fall semester. We talked for over two hours about the decision. It was totally civil, respectful, productive, really interesting conversation. And I think I feel, you know, I think the program has really helped me lean into those sorts of discussions about these really difficult topics. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say go that's ahead, really interesting. <laughs> no, I think that's fascinating because I think most law professors dread the days when they have to teach some of those topics because they're worried there's no way to do it well. It's, I mean, you, you might have to start offering consulting services to <laughs> law faculty, maybe Congress people, maybe, I don't know. There's probably a lot of people who could use your class, use your sessions. Yeah. That's a great way to end it is, mm-hmm. is we're just going to expand your reach and get this podcast out there and, and let them know about this amazing work you're doing. Next, we do our lightning round. This is the part of the podcast when we give answers to questions that may or may not have anything to do with our work or today's topic. Joanne, we talked to you in advance about this. You indicated, uh, hopefully you haven't changed your mind, but but if you have, I'm listening. So, uh, But hopefully you haven't, and you're willing to go along with our lightning round. And so we will answer each of these questions in this order, Rhonda, Bridget, Joanne, and then me. And so Rhonda, you get to be the lead on these. The first one is name one person no longer living who you would bring back to have dinner with. So I would bring back my grandmother. So she passed away when I was in fifth grade. But as you see all the books behind me, I know people listening can't see, but she spent a week with her every summer growing up. And all we did was read. She never had, you know, a whole lot of money or resources. And so that's what we did. Um, We read. And so yeah, I would love to bring her back and show her my library and, and talk books and, and spend time with her. So what about you, Bridget? I would, I would bring my dad back, but I'm just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready to like let him go yet. So I'd bring my dad dad back. Yeah. (laughs) Joanne. Um, well, you know, we've been talking about civil discourse, so I'm still on topic a little bit, which maybe is not the purpose of it, but I think I'd bring back and have dinner with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'd love to dig into her friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia. I mean, you know, they were famously friends, um, good friends, in spite of very strong differences of opinion in the courtroom. And so I just think it'd be fascinating to hear more about that friendship. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'm, I'm a little torn because I was going two directions with this. I was thinking about my grandmother who died right before I graduated from law school. But then I was also thinking about Sandra Day O'Connor. So I was going both ways with topic and otherwise, because I think she was someone who embraced this concept of having conversations and finding compromise. So I'm kind of all over the place, which is not how the lightning round is supposed to go, but there we go. Let's try something else. Second question, what is the last book that you read for fun? So the last book that I read for fun just recently was the, is The Marriage Portrait. I like to read sort of books set in historical times and it's sort of about the Renaissance in Italy in like the 1500s. So, but it was a good read. Bridget, you uh... time? <laughs> I feel like I'm. I might fail this this one, but I, because I've been reading as you, I've been reading books about grief and then and business books, and I read yes. this great one, um, Idea Flow. It's by two design professors at Stanford, and it's their thesis is the only metric that matters to any business is that literally the number of ideas that are generated. It's really fascinating. Actually, chief justices would enjoy it. I think yeah. so. Uh, Idea Flow. It's fantastic. Flow. Joanne. Um, so actually mine's along the same lines. I love reading books about um, business. I love reading them about self-improvement. And so I'd recently read Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is about how to focus without distraction, particularly when you're working on, you know, complex topics or things that require a lot of mental energy. And I thought found it to be pretty practical. So I enjoyed that book. I love that book. I'm just yeah. chiming in. It's a fantastic book. It is a good book. All right. Now, see, I'm the only one in, in the squares uh, as we sit here on Zoom that hasn't read it, so I'm adding it to my list. But mine, I mentioned it before, I'm in the middle of it, but so I'm just going to count it. And that's called The Chaos Machine by Max Fisher. I looked it up so I could give the author in case anybody else is interested in kind of this topic of divisiveness and to the extent that social media has anything to do with it. So our next question is, what is your favorite movie? And this can change from time to time. I think we may have talked about this before, but what's your current favorite movie? So I, I'm terrible with favorite movies. I just don't, I don't watch movies repeatedly. I'm just one of those people. But I was thinking back of one that I have watched recently again, again, going back in history is The King's Speech. I recently rewatched that and I just thought it's motivational to me to see someone sort of overcome obstacles and succeed. So there you go. Bridget. I think I'm bad, I'm bad at this too. I don't, I watch a lot more TV than movies, but I rewatched the Shawshank Redemption recently and that holds up like it. Mm -hmm. so, Going to go with that. Joanne. It's a good choice. I really love all things cheesy related to Christmas. Oh. And so I'm going to go, I'm totally out of season. But every year I rewatch White Christmas. It's one of my favorites. I think it's it's just delightful and uplifting, you know, heartwarming. And so I enjoy that. Uh, well done. That's a classic. And I'm going to stick with my always favorite movie that is not particularly culturally important, but nonetheless, Mary Poppins. I'm just sticking with it because um, I love that movie. And finally, if you were hosting a dinner party with the Lady Justice hosts and our guest today, Joanne, what would you serve or cook? So I, 
I think we talked about this a long time ago and I was going to cook for you, but now my husband has taken over the cooking at our house. And so Michael would be smoking you something. So he would be smoking you ribs or something. And then we would grill up Beth some great veggies. So that's what you'd have at our house. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. And I accept the invitation. <laughs> And I would be panicking and finding a reservation somewhere because I think I'm a terrible cook and I just assume you all are excellent cooks. And so I would be trying to find you a cool restaurant to take you to. Sorry, Joanne. I mean, that sounds like it would be a really fun evening, but so what would I cook? When I, one of the thing, my favorite things to do when I travel is to take a cooking class and learn local cuisine. And I, one of my favorites was in Thailand and I learned how to make this really delicious green curry, like Thai green curry. And so I think I'd, I'd, you know, pull out that little recipe book that they give you and try to make that for you. And so I'm going to change my answer and say that if I were hosting, I'd get Joanne to bring green curry and <laughs> order out some other Thai food because I think that sounds amazing. So that's where we'll leave it. <laughs> and that is a wrap on this episode of Lady Justice Women of the Court. Joanne, we couldn't be more grateful for you being willing to join with us and have a, an interesting discussion. Uh, some on script, some off script. So you did it. You did it well. And we loved hearing about your program. We'll be back again soon. But in the meantime, please follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app. In the course of us preparing for this episode of Lady Justice on Civil Discourse, we knew we had invited Professor Koob from the Law and Liberty Center at the Antoine Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. I went to the center's website, and it's such a small world that I recognized a lawyer from Arkansas in the photos, so I reached out and asked her to join us on the podcast. Hannah Bell is an Arkansan. I hope you say you're an Arkansan. Um, Proudly. <laughs> okay. And who went to the Scalia Law School and returned to practice in Arkansas. And I had the honor of swearing her in. So Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justice Wood. I appreciate it. So Hannah, you went to the Scalia Law School. So tell me a little bit about what made you leave the beautiful state of Arkansas and choose to go to law school there. So it was actually a very difficult decision. I spent hours racking my mind over where I wanted to be. I knew ultimately I wanted to come back to Arkansas. This is home. This is where I want to spend my career. This is, you know, the place that I want to continue making and promoting is the best state in the country. Sorry to any of your listeners from other states, but I do truly believe it. And so I spent numerous hours, many, many conversations. And ultimately, the conversation I think that led to a lot of clarity for me was with my mentor. And he said, you can always come back but you can't always leave. And, and that really resonated with me because I'd studied abroad recently. And so I knew what coming home was like and how exciting it was. And so I decided to go. And ultimately it was a great experience. I received a tremendous legal education, which I would have at either institution, but the outside of school experiences, I think were what really created that extra value for me. I was able to study abroad with the Supreme Court Justice. I was able to go to a lying in state for a US president, observe a full oral argument at the Supreme Court, and just do a variety of things that students 
in Arkansas would have to go way far above and beyond to really have the opportunity for those experiences. Now, I know that from talking to you before that you had some fantastic opportunities that that are really terrific. Of course, I'm a proponent of our law schools locally too. So I think it's just each student picking the the best path for themselves. And But one of the things that we've really liked and one of the reasons we want to do this podcast on this episode, I mean, this episode specifically, is the fact that they have the public discourse project at the Law and Liberty Center and especially wanted to bring you in and the goal really of that public discourse project is it seeks to ameliorate partisan divisiveness by fostering civil discourse among students and promoting civic virtue. And according to the law school's website, it brings together students in a different ideological and partisan pl- political perspectives for one-on-one or small group conversations about their beliefs issues of importance and other substantive topics in roundtable discussions. And so Hannah, I really wanted to hear about your thoughts on it. And besides the professors, from a student perspective, what did you think about the experience? I thought it was a really eye-opening experience. So I was able to sit with other individuals who were on my journal And, you know, we hadn't had the opportunity really to discuss politics, right? We're discussing journal business and we're going over the things that we need to accomplish. And so we weren't necessarily going into the nitty gritty of what are your, you know, political beliefs? What do you do in your voting booth? And what do you do in your off time? Who do you campaign for if you do campaign? And so that I think was a good experience because we were able to go, oh, you know what? We've been working together for, you know, six, eight months, a year at this point. And we've been great friends and had a good time and really gotten to, you know, appreciate and respect one another. And that had never come up. The politics part had never come up. And so when it did come up, we were able to really step back and say, you know what, because I know you, I can understand that you might have this different perspective from me, but we can still have a conversation about it and not name call and not, you know, belittle each other because we understand that each of us is coming from a perspective that we have a reason for. We have, you know, done research, we've taken a position, we've discussed with other people. And so that I think was a great part of the experience for me. The other thing that I think is important to to note is Professor Kube didn't force us to have a conversation about necessarily a particular topic or, you know, a particular way to approach a conversation. She essentially wanted to create, and I know safe space is, you know, kind of a, a, a negative word in a lot of a lot of areas today, but she wanted to create a, a place for us to really feel like we could talk about these things, you know, whether it be a sensitive topic of abortion, whether it be government spending, whether it be, you know, gay marriage, anything like that. She wanted to create a safe space for us to really have those conversations, knowing that we weren't going to be attacked for having our beliefs, but that we were genuinely curious about what the other person believed and why they believed it in the hopes that maybe we could learn more about why we believe what we believe. Maybe we could, you know, double down a little bit on what we think because we've heard those reasons, we thought about it, those aren't the reasons for us. Or, you know, you might reassess your position. And so you might really begin to go, why why am I taking that position? Is it because that's how I was raised, where I was raised? You know, my life experiences are completely different from that other person. Uh, Having grown up on a farm, 
I definitely have a little bit of a life experience that's different than most people, especially when you go to Washington, D.C. A lot of my classmates were from the East Coast, and so they couldn't even fathom having 54,000 chickens like we did, as, along with cattle and stuff like that. So bring, bringing those different perspectives and different life experiences, I think, was also very helpful because, again, we weren't coming in there to say, this is my position, and I'm going to stick with it. We're coming in there going, okay, you've had a different experience. You have a different viewpoint. What are we thinking that is a commonality between us? What is our end goal? You know, do we have the same end goal? Is it a better, more prosperous United States? Is it a better, safer United States? What is everybody's end goal? And I think that ultimately led to us really thinking we can have this conversation. And, and so I think that that was part of the, the positive nature of this discussion as well. That's, it's really interesting to me because it's a little bit, our podcast has been that experience for me in the sense that we originally started with four justices and we all had different, a little bit different ideological backgrounds. And so two of us were elected nonpartisan, one was elected Republican, one ran as a Democrat and later ran as an independent. And so a lot of people thought it was really strange that the four of us were doing this podcast together, but it showcased that, you know, we could have these discussions about the justice system and state Supreme courts, and it didn't matter really what our ideological backgrounds were. And so I think that's what my impression was that the sort of public discourse center was trying to develop further is to get people to have discussions and talk without focusing really on their political backgrounds. So I'm curious did that experience of sort of them creating really, it sounds like a forum just to sort of talk about things, has that helped or changed your experience? Do you feel like that has helped you in whether it's lawyer to lawyer conflicts or lawyer to client conflicts? Because <laughs> so I assume that you have lawyers, I know when I practice that came from very different perspectives, but definitely in your experience as a client, as a lawyer client or that you have different experiences. So what's the difference there? Has that helped you? So I think that it has helped me a bit because I'm able to approach a, attorneys opposing counsel with a bit more grace. I feel like I, I can listen to their perspective and take it in and weigh kind of the, the merit as far as what I'm having to evaluate on my side of that position. So I tell opposing counsel all the time, send me what you think is mitigation. Send me what you think, you know, is something that I should consider. It may not change my opinion. I may stay where I'm at, but not sending it means I'm staying where I'm at. And so that's definitely something that I think has helped me is just realizing that, you know, there are again, more facts to the story there's something bigger than just maybe a statistic or just, you know, this specific fact pattern. If you look at the whole person, even as a lawyer, right, as a, as a deputy prosecutor, in my case, when you look at the whole person, you can definitely evaluate and assess. And I think that that's an important component to my job that I develop those skills further through doing programs and uh, forums like Professor Kube's and just being able to have those conversations because they can be uncomfortable. And, you know, I could be sitting here going, well, I have a victim and I need to make sure that my victim is comfortable with this. Why, why are you saying that I should lower it other than your client wanting it to be lowered, right? Mm -hmm. 
client and every defense attorney wants their client's offer to be lower. I don't blame them on that. I would want mine to be lower too, but I have to be able to go back at the end of the day and say, why did I make this decision? Is it based in fact? Is it based in merit? And I think that having conversations that are difficult, especially in a place that you know the stakes are a little bit lower, is important because while you respect your classmates and your colleagues at the law school, you also know that this is a low stakes environment where we can, you know, go back to just being journal mates, colleagues, et cetera. And we don't have to deal with some of those necessarily tougher topics because the world problem solving is not on our shoulder. So I think that one of the other things is that Professor Kube is trying to set sort of a model for other universities and law schools of the program to sort of try to set that out and say, here's what we're doing. Would you sort of like to copy and and use that? Is there anything you can think of that it would encourage other schools or are there things that you would change a little bit in sort of what you saw the school do or to improve it? Suggestions? That's a great question. I think Having just the ability to have access to those types of conversations is the first step, right? To encourage the schools to have those conversations available and not make them one-sided. And I think a lot of times when you're a student, you feel so much as, you know, faculty focused or speaker, who, who can we bring in? You know, who, who can we uh, tie school to make us look more notable? And I think that showcasing that, you know what, we care about the conversation student to student. You all are the future generation of lawyers. You all will be leading this country in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, could be sooner than that, depending on what stage of their career they're in. We had a lot of non-traditional students being in D.C. It was really easy for them to be able to attend. But I think encouraging students from that perspective that, that this is student focused to, to allow those conversations, because I do think a lot of people feel that they can't have those conversations, especially in my generation, we've grown up with this polarization. And I'm kind of on the tail end or the front end, depending on how you look at it, of basically the other side being the enemy, right? And so I think that allowing people to recognize that there isn't really an other side. We're all, in in this case, Americans, we're all you know, Arkansans, if they were to do something like this in Arkansas, and we're trying to promote just having that conversation. Because I think at the end of the day, what most people don't recognize is that we do truly have the same or similar end goals. We just have different routes of trying to accomplish that goal. And so if we can focus on this is the end goal and not get weighed down in the nitty gritty, that would be a great thing for people to learn because that translates into your career as well. Whether you're in business, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in you know, a sports agent, whether you're a lawyer, you're going to have to focus on what is the end goal here. And sometimes how you get to that end goal isn't the most important piece. Obviously we wanna do things ethically, legally, all of those things, but focusing on this is the conversation we're having to get to the end goal, I think is really beneficial to universities and creating active citizens after graduation and creating civic involvement and and just creating better rounded individuals. So I would just encourage universities from that perspective, because we want to have active and engaged citizens 
And, you know, especially those who have received that standard formal education to, to be involved and to really harness the potential that we all have uh, to create a better place for future generations. No, that's fantastic. I'm really encouraged by the next generation. It seems as if you're on a good path <laughs> and you're sort of a model example of that. So, so one of the things we sort of end with is we like to get to know people better. So I'm going to ask you some short questions and, uh, but I, if you need a moment to think about them, that's okay too. So who is the one person no longer living that you would bring back to have dinner with? And it can be someone you've never met before. Oh, tough question. It is. It may make me a little emotional, but I think my dad's mom, she passed away in 2007. And while I wouldn't want her to be back here in the state of current affairs, I would love to share with her being a lawyer, uh, using my argumentative skills for good. So I think I would want to have dinner with her. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So let me ask you this. You're up a little bit. <laughs> what was the last book that you read for fun? Oh, goodness. I think it was a couple weeks ago. And I think it was a Colleen Hoover book. So okay. definitely not something <laughs> serious, not something inspirational. That's but fantastic. <laughs> I, I enjoy reading to decompress after yes. work. We deal with heavy stuff all day and we you know, have to deal with complicated topics. And so I like to read something essentially that allows me to go brain dead. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's part of that life work balance. So do you have a favorite movie? Um, I feel like I could break that down into genres, but overall just for like good laughs and, and just an overall feel good. I really enjoy 13 going on 30. I've always enjoyed that movie. Again, I think it's partly because I'm kind of in the middle of that generational gap. I know what razzles are, but I also, you know, can relate to like wanting to grow up immediately. And then 30 seems so far away when it came out and now 30s, you know, right on my doorstep. And so it's kind of just that movie that travels with you throughout your life. And you kind of just can feel good about watching it and you, you know, watch those heavy decisions being made, but you also just have a good laugh with it as well. And last question is, if you had brought the four lady justices or three now lady justices over to your house, what would you cook for us? Oh, people like spicy food. <laughs> I can make a pretty mean chicken, green chicken enchilada or green chili chicken enchilada. So that would probably be it. I also can make a pretty mean bolognese and homemade lasagna. So one of those three, probably. Sounds fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us in this episode and answering our questions. And again, you're pretty remarkable and give us a lot of hope for the next generation of lawyers. And who knows, maybe you'll be a lady justice in the future. Thank you, Justice Wood. I appreciate it. Well, thank you and have a good rest of the day. Hopefully thank you. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast with one retired and two sitting state Supreme Court justices. To learn more about this episode, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. 
Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.